This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So... What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Millions of people across the Northeast are digging out from this weekend's huge blizzard. We'll have reports from the front lines in just a few minutes. And then it's on to President Obama, who now has slightly less than a year to go in his presidency. This morning, he'll be looking back and ahead with our Lee Cowan. Uh, let me look at this thing one last time. There are a lot of last moments coming up this year for the president and a lot of reflecting. We are done. Yeah. Not only on what he's accomplished, but what he hasn't. One thing that gnaws on me uh, is the degree of uh, continued polarization. This has gotten worse uh, over the last several years. The end of a term and the beginning of a life after politics. Later on Sunday morning. Today is a big day for the NFL, with both conference championship games on tap. But what happens on the gridiron could have a long-term impact that goes well beyond deciding the next month's Super Bowl contenders. Morocco will report our cover story. The $10 billion business of pro football is more popular than ever, and the NFL says safer than ever. Small consolation to former Dallas Cowboy great Tony Dorsett. What kinds of things started happening? Oh, memory, man. Just, you know, places that I go to on a regular basis, all of a sudden I'm just wondering, well, how do, how do I get there? You can see him go down and hit. The lasting impact of concussions on football. 
ahead on Sunday morning. Just five weeks to go until Oscar night, when the call goes out for The Envelope, Please. For one Best Actress nominee, recognition has been a long time coming. She'll be talking about that and more with Anthony Mason. My God, you are some beautiful woman. She spent a half century on screen. You've never been nominated for an Oscar. No. Now, Charlotte Rampling is finally up for an Academy Award. That pleases me. <laughs> but the actress courted controversy this past week, and it's not the first time. The alluring and enigmatic Charlotte Rampling, ahead on Sunday morning. A long-gone airline is still flying high, as far as a number of its veterans are concerned. Connor Knighton will have their story. They've flown in from all over the world to remember the days when they flew all over the world. Lana Turner was on one of my flights, and Lex Barker was with her, and they each had a berth booked, but one berth was never slept in. <laughs> so the Mile High Club existed. Right. <laughs> Ahead on Sunday morning, the stewardesses of Pan Am. Margaret Brennan shows us the little-known art of Ernst Kirchner. Steve Hartman has a one-of-a-kind love story. We'll also mark a Macintosh birthday. Ahead. The sweetbreads would have been prepared in Paris by Maxime's. It's TV. one of the top restaurants oh, in the world, right? Yes. The food was just exquisite. When Pan Am was flying high. But first, digging out. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. As we've told you, in the Northeast, this has been the weekend of the big blizzard. We have three reports, beginning with Marley Hall in New York. The snow has stopped now, but the big storm was one for the books. Second largest on record. 26.8 inches here in Central Park. More than two feet of snow and ice blanketed New York City. 50 mile an hour winds created whiteout conditions. This is a very big deal. All New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio threatened to arrest anyone out driving. People have to take very seriously what's going on here. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo declared a state of emergency, then jumped into action to help a driver stuck in the snow. But not everyone was so lucky. There were more than 300 accidents, none of them fatal. Things are starting to get back to normal here. Later today, Central Park will likely see its fair share of tourists and snowball fights. I'm Jerika Duncan, 70 miles south. The worry is more than snow and ice. Here along the New Jersey shore, flooding is a big concern. High tides along with strong winds have caused flooding in coastal areas, putting hundreds of homes at risk. Since Superstorm Sandy in 2012, protective sand dunes and retaining walls have been constructed in some coastal communities. But even with these improvements, Towns like Manilokan are still feeling vulnerable. Police Chief Stacy Ferris. A lot of people still have the concern from Sandy. 
And it's honestly, we feel, a form of post-traumatic stress. They have been traumatized, losing their homes. They've rebuilt, right? They've come back bigger and stronger, and then you have another one at your door. Statewide, some 45,000 homes lost power yesterday. But officials say they won't know the full extent of the storm's damage until later today. I'm Chris Van Cleve. Washington, D.C. averages 19.5 inches of snow a year. The region got more than that from this one storm, and it left a huge mess. After canceling more than 10,000 flights, the airlines hope to resume flying today to the snow-covered northeast. In D.C., mass transit is shut down, while the focus turns to digging out after 36 hours of snow left many streets impassable. Many, but not all. What are you doing riding your bike in a blizzard? Oh, well, I'm from New Hampshire, so like the snow and missing my skis, so this is, I guess, the next best thing. Is this easy to bike in? Not particularly. The snowbanks are a little difficult. Difficult for people, but not for pandas. The National Zoo's Chen Chen couldn't be happier to take full advantage of this epic snow day. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This year's Super Bowl contenders will be known by the end of today's conference championship games. The full human impact of all that action may not be known for years. Our cover story is reported now by Mo Rocca. Football has, has meant a lot to me. It's brought a lot of notoriety to me. It's, it's uh, recognition. It's, it's, it's it made me a lot of money. It's made me a lot of friends. Uh, so it's, it's, been a, it's been a great sport. Goal line defense, the handoff door set up. Back in the 1970s and 80s, Dallas Cowboys running back, number 33, Tony Dorsett, was unstoppable. His record-breaking 99-yard touchdown run in 1983 is one of the most famous plays in NFL history. A Hall of Famer, Dorsett's one of only nine players to win both college football's Heisman Trophy and a Super Bowl ring. He and the Cowboys were superstars. You guys were kings. Royalty. Emperors. <laughs> we rule we the city. To make you the best that you could possibly be. But for all his fame and fortune, Tony Dorsett has paid a price. What kinds of things started happening? Well, memory, man, just, you know, places that I go to for, on a regular basis, all of a sudden I'm just wondering, well, how do, how do I get there? Taking my kids to school, you know, and picking them up, and where do I pick them up? And he says he became short-tempered with his wife and four children. So in 2013, Dorsett had his brain scanned at UCLA Medical Center. Diagnosed with CTE. The scans showed signs of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a degenerative brain disease believed to be caused by concussions. Last year, researchers at Boston University confirmed CTE in the brains of 87 out of 91 deceased former NFL players. Hall of Famer's Junior Seau, who shot and killed himself in 2012, and the late great Frank Gifford both had it too. Are you convinced that the CTE is the result of your career in football? <laughs> Are you serious? I gotta ask. You, you, you can't be serious. Am I serious? What else would it be, Phil? What else would it be, Phil? Am I serious? 
Excuse my French. H-E-L-L. Yes, I'm serious. The 61-year-old says violent hits from more than 20 years of playing football have left him in the fight of his life. Hits like this one in 1984 against the Philadelphia Eagles. What it feels like is there's no feeling, because when it happens, you, you're knocked unconscious. I kind of like got blindsided, so to speak, you know, and the hit was just, it was, <laughs> it was vicious. It was violent. When you were playing in high school and in college, did people even talk about concussions? Absolutely not. No, no nobody talked about concussions. I mean, uh, and, and then if they did, I mean, it's like shake it off and get back out there. Look at me. Just move your eyes. That's just what six-year-old MJ Kenner did. He plays for San Antonio's Tri-County Titans. Arms out, palms out. After undergoing a concussion test from coaches, he got right back in the game. Once they looked at you and made sure you were okay, you were ready to go back in? Yes. Okay, and if you weren't, would you say so? Yes. MJ's mom, Siobhan. Are you worried? Let's go! No, I mean... I'm never worried because I know I'm mean, the tough kid. He's coached well. And, you know, kids get hurt. Um, I mean, kids can get hurt anywhere. The game of football is it's, it's organized violence. Brian Morgan runs the Texas Youth Football Association, which includes the Titans. What time is it? Are you going to deliver the hit? The TYFA has drawn strong criticism for its unapologetic portrayal of young kids playing tackle football on the reality show Friday Night Tykes. Our league is a very competitive league, and we're not one of those leagues where everyone is going to get a trophy just because they showed up. Despite the recent headlines about brain injuries, Morgan's League has seen a steady increase in participation. But Pop Warner, by far America's largest youth football organization, has seen a decline. Do you think that there are too many parents out there that are coddling their kids, that are treating them like they're fragile objects? I think so. It's, it's kind of the wussification of America sometimes. I think we're a little bit too soft on our kids and we're creating a generation of soft people. What does a kid as young as six years old get from playing tackle football? I think the biggest thing they get is they get a sense of camaraderie. They're really learning how to work together, work together as a team, and overcome adversity. It has a kind of a beauty. There's a ballet aspect to it, too. Sally Jenkins is a four-time National Sports Columnist of the Year for The Washington Post. Is it inherently violent? Of course. Absolutely. You know, uh, it's about men moving other men out of the way, uh, head first. Jenkins is a big fan of football, but the NFL, she says, isn't taking care of its past players and isn't being honest with the families of its future players. If, as a league, you're telling them, hey, it's really safe for your six-year-old and your seven-year-old and your eight-year-old to play tackle football, then you are responsible for the number of hits those kids take from the time they are six through their NFL career, okay? You can't just say we're only responsible for what happens on the field during their NFL career and prove that the, their, their CTE isn't a result of their grade school career or their high school career. Bull. Currently, the NFL covers health insurance during a player's career and five years post-retirement, even though players' injuries can last a lifetime and sometimes don't even manifest themselves until well after retirement. We don't tell any other employee who goes into a dangerous profession. We don't tell firefighters if you get injured in a, in a burning building. Yeah. 
you have no health care. Tough sledding, right. <laughs> but for some reason in the NFL, you're on your own. So who is picking up the tab for players' long-term health care? The American taxpayer, because what's paying for that stuff is Medicaid. Medicaid and Medicare. But the biggest change, Jenkins says, needs to happen at the youth level. You know, the funny thing is there's people around the league who feel like, oh, my gosh, if you don't have six-year-olds playing tackle football, we won't have Peyton Mannings or we won't have Tom Brady's. Well, that's ludicrous. Tom Brady didn't play tackle football till he was in high school. What is this weird fear that if you don't have six-year-olds you know, beating on each other, that somehow we won't be able to grow NFL football players? It's a complete fallacy. How old were your boys when they first played organized tackle football? Um, seventh grade. I think you can wait on the contact and the tackling. I think there's plenty of time for that. Archie Manning starred for the New Orleans Saints in the 1970s and 80s. And he's the father of Super Bowl winning quarterbacks Peyton and Eli, who played non-tackle flag football as a kid. Love flag football now. Can you learn all the skills that you need? It, it, with flag football, or are you missing out somehow? I think, no, I think at a young age, you, you learn plenty. But Manning says pro football has done a good job addressing the concussion issue with new rules and better equipment, which the NFL, in its own report, says have reduced concussions 35%. I think a lot, a lot has been done in the last three, three and four years to make, make the game safe at every level. But Sally Jenkins believes the NFL and team owners could easily do more. You're not going to take neurological disease out of the equation. But what you can do is mitigate and palliate, you know. And if it means that it's a lot less profitable for Bob Kraft, you know, or a Tish or a Lurie or a York, tough. If concussions are the black lung of football, we've got to do something about that to make sure that people with black lung and their families are cared for. I think the moral solution here is to, is to create the equivalent of a coal act for football and say, if you want to do business in this industry, you have to agree to take care of the workers in this industry. The NFL can't want federal oversight. Oh, no. That is the, that is the thing they are most afraid of. Tony Dorsett didn't know the toll all of those hits would take on him. But someone, he says, did know. The management knew way before players on what the damage that was being done to players. The management at the, at the pro level? Yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, from, from my knowledge, yes. They knew, they knew about it way before the players knew about it. And the long-term effects are... Exactly. We asked the Dallas Cowboys about Dorsett's assertions. They told us that since no one from Dorsett's era is still with team management, it would not be appropriate to comment. As for the NFL, they declined to speak with us on camera, but issued a statement that they welcome any conversation about player health and safety. I never thought that I would be going through what I'm going through right now because of playing football, but I just thought I'd just, just be retired like mom and pops, you know, just enjoying life. And when you look back on, on your career, would you do it all again? Absolutely.
Coming up, a taste of the apple. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. January 24th, 1984, 32 years ago today. The day Apple delivered on a promise it made in a Super Bowl commercial just two days earlier. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Steve Jobs himself presented the first Macintosh to the world that day, the very first computer offering user-friendly icons, along with a mouse. Many of us have been working on Macintosh for over two years now, and it has turned out insanely great. Not entirely. At $2,500, consumers found that original Macintosh too expensive for what it could actually do. Sales fell short of expectations, and in a little more than a year, Steve Jobs was effectively forced to leave the company. Of course, what happened next is now the stuff of high-tech legend, not to mention the recent film, Steve Jobs, for which Michael Fassbender has been nominated for an Oscar. What do you do? I play the orchestra. And you're a good musician. You sit right there. You're the best in your role. On the verge of bankruptcy in 1997, Apple brought Steve Jobs back. And what followed was a seemingly endless succession of successful Apple products, continuing up to Steve Jobs' death in 2011 and beyond. By the way, the early 1984 Macintosh computer had 0.13 megabytes of memory. The iPhone 6S, introduced last year, has 16 gigabytes. That's 123,000 times more memory. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Perhaps you remember the days when a prestigious airline was flying high. Even if you don't, many of the women who proudly wore its uniform do. Connor Knighton takes us aboard. Before they were called flight attendants, they were called stewardesses. They were the glamour of flying personified, the picture of jet age sophistication. These are the women of Pan Am. Pan American World Airways, Pan Am, last flew in 1991. For its former employees, the golden age of travel lives on. At reunions like this, held not long ago in Savannah, Georgia. Stewardesses were highly thought of, and we had to have a bit of college, at least, in which I had. We were happy-go-lucky girls. (laughs) 90-year-old Kathleen Cook Gray and her daughter Leslie Manning Both flew for Pan Am. I started in 1948, dinosaur days. Out of San Francisco, I flew to Honolulu every time. It was like a second home. And then we'd go to Shanghai, we'd go to Manila, and we'd go to Sydney, Australia. Our trips were about three weeks. 
I lost all my boyfriends in San Francisco because I've <laughs> gone too home. long. <laughs> Pan Am was the pioneer in aviation. A Martin 130, the most advanced piece of commercial flying equipment in the world. Pan Am was the first airline to have scheduled service across the Atlantic and Pacific. They were the first ones to have an actual airline terminal and have air traffic control and serve hot meals on board an aircraft. Author and historian Becky Sprecher flew six years for the airline. Part four is about the jets, or the glory days, as we all call them. She says every flyer today owes a debt to one man, the founder of Pan Am. Wine Trip was a Navy man, so he decided to style the airline in a nautical fashion, the port and starboard and forward and aft and galleys and so forth. And he named the clippers for the clipper ships. And they were very romantic names, the Empress of the Skies and the West Wind and these lovely names. So this is Pan American 707 Jet Clipper Service, Flight 116 to Paris. Flying first class on a clipper was the experience of a lifetime. People dressed up for it. It was an occasion. The journey was as important as the destination. Their uniforms were designed by the likes of Adolfo and Edith Head. This was my first uniform from 1966. When you put this on, you're like a different person. You go back to being 20. The journey came complete with a five-star meal. We could do just about everything except flambe something. Obviously, you can't light, better off have flames on an aircraft. We had a wonderful roast, and we got really good at cooking in convection ovens, and I could just lay a pair of tongs on it and know it was rare. Things like the sweetbreads would, would have been prepared in Paris mm. by Maxime's. The, it's one the, of the top restaurants uh, in the world, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, the food was just exquisite. The entrees... Mario Khan kept the menus from some of those meals. Lobster Thermidor? Oh, so good. From New York, where I was based, we flew through Europe and through the Middle East, Beirut, Tehran, and then all the way to Bangkok and Hong Kong. Boarding your flight, you were greeted personally. We'd get a seat assignment beforehand, and we had to memorize the names and call the passengers by their names. Sometimes, those names weren't hard to remember. Lana Turner was on one of my flights, and Lex Barker was with her, and they each had a berth booked, but one berth was never slept in. <laughs> oh, oh <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> So the Mile High Club existed. Right. <laughs> Pan Am brought the Beatles to the United States, and it brought its employees into contact with worlds they never imagined. A friend of mine and I ran into a movie crew going into Manila, and they said, would you all like to join us on the set? Well, of course, we'd never been on a movie set before, but this one was a Lulu. It was Apocalypse Now. And we flew up in Francis Coppola's plane and watched some of the filming and came back home. It was just kind of all in a day's work. On January 21st, 1970, Pan Am introduced Boeing's 747 jumbo jet and ushered in a new era of air travel. Rome is getting ready. CBS News covered the event with stories from around the globe. Paris is ready. Holy Airport is ready to load and unload not one, but God forbid, four Boeing 747 jumbo jets at the same time. But 1978 brought deregulation to the airline industry, which turned out to be a mixed blessing for both airlines and passengers. It was the beginning of the end for Pan American. 
Many air travelers in this community are seeing the other side of the deregulation coin, the side that allows the major airlines to abandon service to economically marginal towns in order to cash in on the more lucrative routes. But Pan Am faced a far greater threat. Pan Am brand recognition globally was right up there with Coca-Cola. So when there were people that wanted to do America harm, they conflated Pan Am with the United States. This is the CBS News Special Report, the tragedy of Pan Am 103. The downing of Pan Am 103 killed 270 people. Leslie Manning felt the shock of Lockerbie personally. When I saw that airplane and I saw the cockpit and I knew that I had flown on that plane several times, that was devastating. Pan American never recovered. Three years later, the airline shut down. But for its employees, those were the days. It was the sorority that I, I didn't know I needed. It handpicked the most brilliant, interesting, educated, worldly women that I could even imagine that I got to have as colleagues and I loved it and I was comfortable. We all still talk about our favorite restaurants in Tokyo to eat tonkatsu and where to go for dim sum in Hong Kong at nine o'clock in the morning. All these different things that we did, it's a unifying language with Pan Am. <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> still to come, love is on the menu. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Listen, the damn case doesn't start before tomorrow and already it's over for you. It is over. You want to be a failure? Then do it someplace else. I can't invest in failure, Frank, anymore. It's Sunday morning on CBS and here again is Charles Osgood. Charlotte Rampling starred with Paul Newman in The Verdict back in 1982. But it was only with her most recent movie role that she won an Oscar nomination for Best Actress. With the Oscars just five weeks away, here's Anthony Mason with The Envelope, Please. In half a century on screen, she's played opposite Paul Newman. My God, you are some beautiful woman. Robert Redford. Find the outside. I'm sure we won't be missed. And Woody Allen, who cast her as his ideal beauty in Stardust Memories. I'm crazy about you. Don't even know who I am. In Paris, where Charlotte Rampling has lived for most of her adult life, she's known as La Legende, the legend. Oh. A British actress at home in France, she's never courted Hollywood, preferring the parts to come to her. It's like a strange form of pride, maybe. I don't know what it is. Or maybe I'm just an old-fashioned girl and I like to be asked to dance, you know? Uh -huh. Somebody's going to ask me to dance, always. And you're still dancing. And I'm still dancing. <laughs> this year, in the film 45 Years, you're not lying to me. About a marriage suddenly destabilized as the couple approach a landmark anniversary. You really believe you haven't been enough for me? No, I think I was enough for you. I'm just not sure you do. Rampling's nuanced performance as the wife has earned the actress her first Academy Award nomination. That pleases me. <laughs> She's one of 20 actor nominees this year, all white. 
the exclusion of black actors, has prompted calls for an Oscar boycott. When Rampling called that racist to whites, racist pour les blancs. In remarks on Europe's Radio 1 last week, the backlash was swift. I regret that my comments could have been misinterpreted, she said later in a statement to Sunday morning. I simply meant to say that in an ideal world, every performance will be given equal opportunities for consideration. Rampling has courted controversy before, most notoriously in the 1974 film the night porter, when she played a concentration camp survivor who, after the war, resumes a sadomasochistic relationship with the Nazi officer who abused her. You yourself have said night porter was a dangerous role. Yeah, I realized it could be very explosive, but then at the same time, it was extremely exciting to feel that you could touch that. And when you got the critical reaction, you did. I was, I was really blasted. Many critics were disgusted. Pauline Kael called it an insult to the people caught in the Holocaust. But the film became an art house hit. For a long time, and perhaps maybe even still to this day, that's the image a lot of people still associate with you. Yeah. How do you feel about that? That means that it's a very strong image. If that's what identifies me, then that's fine by me. You're proud of it. Yeah, I am. It led to higher-profile films in the 80s. She played an attorney who double-crosses her lover, Paul Newman, in The Verdict. You were actually punched by Paul Newman. Reaction, and then I fall. Yeah, there's something in your reaction, too, that's really interesting. Yeah, I love that moment, actually. Leave him alone. Do you know what it is that's there? It's the shame, the humiliation, and the acceptance. In Stardust Memories, she played a neurotic actress. I can't be alone. I can't be too close. But Rampling was battling her own demons. By the end of the decade, she would suffer a nervous breakdown. Depression is about stuff that you've just pushed down and down and down. Or not even pushed down, it's just sitting there, but it hasn't been dealt with. Did you reach a point where you were you felt just paralyzed? Yeah, and you just can't get out the door anymore. What Rampling hadn't dealt with was the death of her older sister, Sarah, who'd committed suicide in 1967. That was a big trigger, because you have to push that down. Yeah. I was 20, and my mum was so devastated by grief, she sort of was almost gone, so there I was. But I had, you have to keep going. Mm -hmm. Rampling and her father kept the cause of Sarah's death secret from her mother. And I always wondered if mom was protected by that pact or poisoned by the lie. Rampling writes in Qui Je Suis, Who I Am, published in French last year. It took me long spells in the wilderness before I shed my first tear so as to finally become a woman relieved by pain which had been too much contained. You and your sister were very close. She was my, you know, closest friend. We were incredibly bonded. Mm -hmm. You kind of had a singing group together? Yeah, <laughs> we did. And we got up and did the singing act where we sang these cute French songs, you know, and we had the tights and the berry and the mac, you know, very French. <laughs> and we were all of the rage. <laughs>
As she was wrestling with depression, Rampling's 20-year marriage to composer Jean-Michel Jarre was unraveling. She continued to work mostly in France, but otherwise stayed out of the public eye. How long would you say that period lasted for you? I would say uh, getting over 10 years. Really? Mm. Rampling re-emerged in 2000 in the French film Under the Sand, about a woman whose husband goes for a swim on vacation and vanishes. The wife can't bear to confront her loss. When Rampling saw the final cut of the film, she had a revelation. A whole bell crashed in my head. And I said, this film is about Sarah, this is all about her. A lot of people well, perceive it, it as a comeback film. But it was a comeback in a sense of me coming through what we've just talked about. That's the time I really realized that I actually was ready to go out again. Oh, Anne. Hello. The next year, she accepted a part in a Hollywood film called Spy Game. You took a film with Robert Redford because you saw there was something in the script you'd be able to do? Yes. <laughs> just give him a kiss. Was it worth it? Which shows that I'm a fun lady, and it was worth it. We did it actually twice, because there was a little problem. And I was called back to do it, so I'm not quite sure whether there really was a technical problem. Or whether my presence had been demanded a second time. <laughs> She's worked steadily since. In the film 45 Years, as Kate Mercer, she confronts her husband about an old lover who haunts their marriage. It's like she's been standing in the corner of the room all this time behind my back. Oh, come on. And it's tainted everything. When I'm doing a scene, it's the real feeling that I'm feeling. It's not me playing at being Kate feeling that. It's absolutely me feeling that in the instant, because I, because I know what that feeling is like. I know what Kate's feeling. Now, two weeks shy of 70, Charlotte Rampling is resurgent. You don't seem to be having problems getting parts. I think older people now are really quite interesting. If 45 years makes a bit of money, that will help, won't it? They'll say, oh, older people can make money. You haven't been asked to be in any superhero movies yet, have you? I was asked to be Superman's mother once. And I thought, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't want to be Superman's mother? No. <laughs> well, you could have been Superman, but not Superman's mum. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Where can you find a recipe for perfect love story? At a restaurant that our Steve Hartman now takes us to. What makes Tim's Place Restaurant in Albuquerque, New Mexico so special is that it is indeed Tim's Place. Hello. How are we doing today? Welcome to my place. Thank you. Tim Harris was the first restaurant owner in the country with Down syndrome. For the last five years, he has lived for his business, which is why his customers were shocked when Tim announced recently that he was closing. My customers cry a lot into mouths. So what drives a man to give up a job he loves more than anything? A girl he loves more than anything. I cannot wait. That blur in the I Love Tim t-shirt is Tiffany Johnson. They met at a Down Syndrome convention. 
I'm like, oh my god, he's, oh my god. Did you go up to him and say something? I was too scared to. Too scared to? Because I never met a guy like Tim. Tiffany says it was the weirdest feeling. I think I got hit by a love bug. <laughs> Eventually, Tim got bit by it too. Will you be my girlfriend? You know I will. Yes. He made her his steady and decided to move to Denver to be closer to her. Tim plans to open a new restaurant there, but it's still going to be hard leaving what he knows. In fact, he cries every time he thinks about it. I'm just really sad I had to lose this place. I'm pretty sad. It's incredible to watch. He's deeply grieving about the idea of this transition. Tim's father, um, Keith. While at the same time being uh, as excited as I've ever seen him about the possibility of being with Tiffany. I'm lucky to have someone that loves me. Every time I feel sad, my girlfriend makes me a lot happier. <laughs> I'm probably out there not crying here. <laughs> when you look her in the eye, what do you see? What do you? I see love. I see, I see joy. And I see that I have, a, I have a future. Why on earth do we call them disabled? I just love them. When on the important things, they can be so much more able than us. Love you. Still to come. The one thing that gnaws on me uh, is the degree of uh, continued polarization. This has gotten worse. A conversation with President Obama. And later, Ernst Kirchner, one of the greats. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Eight years ago, candidate Barack Obama was campaigning for president, and our Lee Cowan was covering him. Now, President Barack Obama has just under a year to go before leaving office. And he was in a reflective mood when Lee spoke with him in Detroit last Wednesday. It is such an extraordinary privilege to have this job. And uh, look, there are times where you, you get tired. There are times where you're frustrated. I think you wonder why you did this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And yet, there has not been a day that I have not walked into the Oval Office and understood that at no point in my life will I ever have the chance to do as much good and make as much of a difference in the lives of people as I do right now. And that's precious. And so I'm going to try to squeeze every last little bit of, of, uh, uh, of good work that I can uh, while I still have the chance. If you're looking for the world's best cars and the workers who make those cars, you need to be in Detroit, Michigan. The president's visit to Detroit, where he toured the North American International Auto Show this past week, came exactly a year to the day before his successor, whoever he or she may be, will move into the White House and the Obamas will move out. So they sell you on one of these things? or I tell what? you what, this is a spiffy car. The president seems especially conscious of that calendar. He joked that the reason he came here was to browse for a new car. After all, he'll soon have to say goodbye to the one he's been using, which is a far cry, by the way, from any car, let alone the one he used to drive. Do you remember the, the first car you had? What did you have? The first car I drove was my grandfather's Granada, which <laughs> was not 
a shining moment for Detroit. <laughs> uh, it was not a great car. Um, not a great date car either. It, it, it was not cool. Uh, I had to compensate in my coolness, uh, given the fact that I was picking uh, girls up in, in the Granada. Uh, Although he was all smiles, the trip had a serious message. I could not be prouder of this industry and the road that we've traveled together. Mr. Obama has been struggling to communicate his successes heading into his last year in office, and the U.S. auto industry is one example. Both GM and Chrysler had record sales last year. A resurgence, Mr. Obama says, was the result of the government bailout during the first year of his administration. We cannot and must not, and we will not, let our auto industry simply vanish. It wasn't a popular idea. Critics thought the new president was overreaching, even cocky. But in hindsight, he says, that's just what the economic crisis demanded. I might have benefited from being young and a little brash and not being as scared as I probably should have been. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, there there was probably some benefit to me thinking, oh, we we can fix this. And... Yeah, uh, we'll figure it out. By some measures, Mr. Obama did figure it out. He's overseen shrinking unemployment, a growing job market. We are done. A reduction in the number of Americans without health insurance. And diplomatic breakthroughs on both climate policy and relations with Cuba. But his foes say those gains have been overshadowed by the rise of ISIS, the trouble in Syria. This active shooter situation is still underway. And terrorism at home. And what stands out even to his supporters has been his inability to be the unifying force that he had promised. The one thing that gnaws on me uh, is the degree of uh, continued polarization. This has gotten worse uh, over the last several years. And I think that in those early months, my expectation was is that uh, we could pull uh, uh, the parties together a little more effectively. Do you wish in hindsight that maybe campaigning on that notion of changing the tone yeah. in Washington, do you wish you hadn't campaigned as hard on that promise? Well, here's the thing. That's what the American people believe. And that's what I still believe. I believe in change because I believe in you, the American people. And that's why I stand here as confident as I have ever been that the state of our union is strong. His final State of the Union seemed an attempt to remind America that despite the exasperating negativity, the last seven years have not been as dismal or dysfunctional or as racially divided as his critics maintain. You know, when I hear people say, for example, in the aftermath of Ferguson and some of the other cases, that race relations have deteriorated, they're terrible. I have to say, well, maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but they're not worse than they were after the Rodney King incident in L.A. And they're certainly not worse than they were back in the 50s or the 60s, but we forget. I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. When he started his campaign for president, he was known less for his term in the Senate 
and more for a single speech that he gave at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. Few doubted his ability to stoke a crowd. There's a wind blowing out there. In Iowa, the crowds started small. But by the end of 2008, his rallies had grown to sometimes tens of thousands, a celebrity status that his rivals often used against him. His staff were mostly 20-somethings, many of whom remain by his side today, a ride that for them, too, is about to come to an end. Now they're in their early 30s and they're starting to have families and I've you know, got babies and you know, Uncle Brock's holding them and playing with them and on the floor of the White House. And, and so I tell them, you know what, when we're on Marine One and we're flying and the Washington Monument's over there and the Capitol's in the background, look up from your smartphone for a second and think about this. Does that still get to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, 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 uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't get old. If you could run for a third term, would you? No, I wouldn't. Number one, Michelle wouldn't let me. Uh, you know, this is a big sacrifice and a great privilege, but it takes a toll on family life. This is a process in which the office should be continually renewed by new energy and new ideas and new insights. And although I think I am as good of a president as I have ever been right now, I also think that there comes a point where you don't have fresh legs. And uh, you know, that's when you start making mistakes or that's when you start thinking that uh, you are what's important as opposed to the mission being more important. How much time do you wonder or spend thinking about what you have done might be undone if a Republican ends up in the White House? Well, you think about that. Uh, but what you discover when you're president is that the institutions and programs and things that you have put in place and built, if you've done a good job and you've done them sensibly, you know, in some cases may need tinkering with, can be improved. But if they're good things, they're harder to undo than you think. He admits there were policies under the Bush administration he disagreed with as a candidate. But once he viewed them from inside the Oval Office himself, he changed his mind. There are a bunch of things that you know, we do to fight terrorism that before I was president, I might have questioned that when I look at it really carefully, I say, you know, on balance, this is, this is something that we need to do uh, to keep us safe. There is a lot he'll miss about the job. Air Force One, for example, isn't too shabby. But what he won't miss is what he calls the bubble of the office. Do you, when you're out at stuff like this, I mean, can you, can you really enjoy it? Or is it always, because everything that you're at always becomes, obviously, a scene. it's an event, it's a scene. Right, look, the, the, the bubble is uh, the hardest thing about the presidency. And I don't think anybody with sense ever gets used to it. It's the thing that uh, makes me happiest about uh, my tenure coming to an end. Where the Obamas will live and what they may do post-White House are all matters of great speculation. Fired up! Ready to go!
But for now, the senator who campaigned on being fired up and ready to go is now ready to see if history will be kind or not. And when I turn over the keys to the next occupant, one thing I'm confident about, and maybe why I don't feel obliged to, to yearn for a third term, is I'm very confident I, I'll be able to say that things are a lot better now than they were when I came into office. And, you know, that's a pretty good uh, eight years worth of work. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Here's a statistic worth noting. Nearly 122,000 Americans are on the waiting list for an organ donation. Also worth noting, this public service announcement from Argentina, easily one of the best arguments we've seen for putting your name on that list. Next, why this art was banned. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The annual World Economic Forum that concluded yesterday makes its home in Davos, Switzerland. Turns out Davos was also the home of a pioneer of modern art whose creations and struggles are not widely known. Margaret Brennan means to correct that. You may not be familiar with Germany's Ernst Kirchner, but his work helped to change the course of modern art. Kirchner is not a household name. Should he be? He should be. He Why? should be just like Picasso, because Kirchner in many ways in the first part of the 20th century parallels Picasso in being the dominant artist for his country. Ernst Kirchner's early career was the focus of an exhibit of modern German prints at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Curator Andrew Robison. If you think of his early works, then you think of nudes, nude women, nude men in the studio, posing, but not posing in an academic sense, lying on a sofa, sitting in a chair. You think of going out to swim. Did a lot of swimming, skinny dipping. Always went swimming nude. 
Kirchner's daring depictions of prostitutes and the street life of Berlin and Dresden in the early 1900s illustrated a frenetic, modern world. The style, known as Expressionism, was pioneered by Kirchner and a small collective of artists who called themselves De Brucke, German for the bridge, meaning a link from classical art to the avant-garde. The art was frantic. They worked extremely fast, sometimes taking just 15 minutes to capture a scene. The images distorted physical reality for emotional effect. So the idea was to move quickly, capture it quickly, capture life while it's on the run, you know, and that sense of joy, sense of love of life is very much characteristic of Kirchner, certainly until the First World War. That's when Ernst Kirchner's life took a dark turn. He joined the German army, but found life in uniform too rigid, too constrained. A mental breakdown got him discharged. A morphine and alcohol addiction would haunt him for life. He sought help at a sanitarium here in the Swiss Alps. The cold, dry air in Davos, Switzerland was considered therapeutic. Kirchner's health improved, and he later moved into this home, which doubled as his studio. And when he came here yes. to Davos, how did all of that change? It was a sort of rebirth for Kirchner in Davos, because uh, the lifestyle in Davos, it was really calm, it was totally different. He was up in the mountains, far away from city life, and it was a sort of healing for him. That artistic rebirth is showcased at the Kirchner Museum in Davos, where Torsten Sadowski is a museum director. And you can see that he is painting uh, the mountains uh, in, in, in purple. Majestic mountains inspired him, and the unusual color choices explode off the canvas. We have blue mountains, we have, uh, we have the, the colors of, of the autumn over here, and we have a very colorful depiction of the city. But the escape for Kirchner was short-lived. As the Nazis climbed to power in Germany, Hitler labeled much modern art degenerate. The Nazis confiscated or destroyed 600 pieces of Kirchner's work, and rich clients stopped buying. Now he's being called un-German. His works are being removed. Some are being destroyed. They're being cleaned out of Germany so that in his own country, his work will not be known. That was for him an enormous problem. He was being diminished. Diminished, totally. In March of 1938, the Nazis invaded nearby Austria, and Kirchner felt besieged. The Nazis were 12 miles away from Davos. Kirchner is sitting there in his mountain house with his paintings and his drawings, his prints, his sculpture, and so forth. And he got more and more this idea, my God, these guys, they're 12 miles away, and they've destroyed my art in Germany, and now they're coming from me. Kirchner decided it was better to destroy his own artwork rather than let the Germans do it. Not only his art, he would destroy his art before they had a chance, and he would destroy himself. He tried to persuade his longtime girlfriend, Erna, to commit a joint suicide. She refused, but couldn't stop him. And then he went outside of the house, and she heard two shots. And that was it. He shot himself? Shot himself in the heart. Kirchner was just 58 years old. 
He and Erna are buried side by side near their former home. But his artistic legacy has only grown. The Kirchner Berliner Straßensehner, showing on the turntable there on my right. One of his surviving paintings, a street scene in Berlin, sold in 2006 for $38 million. And in Germany, a country whose rejection tortured him, Kirchner is now revered as one of its greatest modern artists. What do all these folks have in common? Find out next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The campaign debate over Ted Cruz's eligibility to be president is casting a spotlight on the constitutional phrase, natural-born citizen. Although a number of legal experts believe that Cruz passes that test, there's no doubt that many other American citizens do not. Some thoughts on this from contributor Scott Simon of NPR. Elon Musk may make electric cars and spaceships for Mars, but he can never be president of the United States. Nor can Sergey Brin, a founder of Google, or Jerry Yang, co-founder of Yahoo, or Madeleine Albright and Henry Kissinger, no matter how many treaties they signed as Secretary of State. They're all U.S. citizens born overseas. But Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution says only a natural-born citizen can be president. That phrase natural-born has nothing to do with the Lamaze method. It means being a U.S. citizen at birth. But many of the men and women who've made America weren't born here. Andrew Carnegie, a captain of industry and philanthropy. Felix Frankfurter of the U.S. Supreme Court. Albert Einstein of the cosmos. They all had the ear of presidents, but could never be president. Nor could Newt Rockne, Joseph Pulitzer, or Irving Berlin. All of them national icons, but not natural-born U.S. citizens. America was small when the Constitution was written. The framers feared Britain would send a surge of Canadians over the border to return America to the empire. That clause was their wall. A mass migration of Canadians to restore British royalty doesn't seem much of a threat today, though Prince Harry might be a popular choice. Today, about 10% of Americans are legal immigrants, and they include some of the most accomplished people in the world. Ariana Huffington, George Soros, and Arnold Schwarzenegger might not care that they can't run for president, but we might care. But they're U.S. citizens born overseas who will graduate this year from MIT, Stanford, Ohio State, and Annapolis. They're young immigrants who run companies, teach classes, work two shifts, comfort the sick, command platoons, find cures, and make laws. They are the kind of citizens presidential candidates laud as inspirations, but they can never run for president. You might wonder in the middle of a presidential campaign, can we afford a clause that excludes some of our most talented Americans? I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.